to amplify the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back with Nachi Gupta for the 30th episode of Amplify and the first post-Pontavidra episode of 2019. I hope everyone enjoyed a fantastic conference. This month, we're sticking in the abdomen for another round of evidence-based medicine, focusing on emergency department management of patients with complications of bariatric surgery. As the obesity epidemic continues to worsen in America, bariatric procedures are becoming more and more common, and this population is one that you will need to be comfortable seeing. Thankfully, this month's author, Dr. Ogoniyi, Associate Residency Director at Harvard UCLA, is here to help with this month's evidence-based article. And don't forget Dr. Lee of NYU and Dr. Luber of the McGovern Medical School, who both played a role by peer-reviewing this article. So let's dive in, starting with some background. Obesity is defined as a BMI of greater than 30. Oh my god, we're already starting with these personal assaults? I see how this episode's gonna go. (laughs) No, just some definitions, nothing personal. Whatever. Back to the article. Obesity is associated with an increased risk of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. Rising levels of obesity and associated comorbidities also lead to an increase in bariatric procedures and thereby ED visits. One study found a 30-day ED utilization rate of 11% for those undergoing bariatric surgery with an admission rate of 5%. Another study found a one-year post-RUIN-Y ED visit rate of 31%, and yet another found that 25% of these patients will require admission within two years of surgery. Well, that's pretty worrisome, I'd say. It sure is, but maybe even more worrisome is the rising prevalence of obesity. While it was less than 15% in 1990, by 2016, it has reached 40%. That's almost half of the population. Additionally, back in 2010, it was estimated that 6.6% of the U.S. population had a BMI of greater than 40. That's about 15.5 million adults. Admittedly, the U.S. numbers look really awful, and honestly, they are awful, but this is a global problem. From the 80s to 2018, the worldwide prevalence of obesity nearly doubled. Luckily, bariatric surgical procedures were invented and honed to the point that they have really shown measurable achievements in sustained weight loss. Along with treating obesity, these procedures have also resulted in an improvement in associated comorbidities like hypertension, diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and dyslipidemia. A 2014 study even showed an up to 80% reduction in the likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes postoperatively at the 7-year mark. Taken all together, the rising rates of obesity and rising success and availability of bariatric procedures has led to an increased number of surgeries being performed, with 228,000 being performed in the U.S. in 2017. And while it's not exactly core emergency medicine knowledge, we're going to briefly discuss indications for bariatric surgery, as this is something we don't often review in our academic training programs. According to joint guidelines from the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, and the Obesity Society, there are three groups that meet indications for bariatric surgery. The first is patients with a BMI greater than or equal to 40 without coexisting medical problems. The second is patients with a BMI greater than or equal to 35 with at least one obesity-related comorbidity, such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, or obstructive sleep apnea. And finally, the third is patients with a BMI of 30 to 35 with diabetes or metabolic syndrome. The current evidence is limited for this group. Based on the obesity numbers we just cited, it seems like a ton of people should be eligible for these procedures, which again reiterates why this is such an important topic for us as EM clinicians to be well-versed in. As far as types of procedures go, while there are many, there are three major ones being done in the U.S., and these are the lap sleeve gastrectomy, Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, and lap adjustable gastric banding. 2017, these were performed 60%, 18%, and 3% of the time. And sadly, no two procedures were created alike, and you must familiarize yourself with not only the procedure, but also its complications. So we have a lot to cover. 
Overall, these surgeries are relatively safe with one 2014 review publishing a 10 to 17% overall complication rate and a perioperative 30-day mortality of less than 1%. Before we get into the ED-specific treatment guidelines, I think it's worth discussing the procedures in more detail first. Understanding the surgeries will make understanding the workup treatment and disposition in the ED much easier. Bariatric procedures can be classified as either restrictive or malabsorptive, with restrictive procedures essentially limiting intake and malabsorptive procedures limiting nutrient absorption. Not surprisingly, combined restrictive and malabsorptive procedures, like the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, tend to be the most effective. Do note, however, that 2013 guidelines do not recommend one procedure over another and leave that decision up to local surgical expertise, patient-specific risk factors, and treatment goals. That's certainly an important point for the candidate patient. Let's start by discussing the lap gastric sleeve. In this restrictive procedure, 80% of the greater curvature of the stomach is excised, producing early satiety and weight loss from decreased caloric intake. This has been shown to have both low mortality and low overall rate of complications. Next, we have the lap adjustable gastric band. This is also a restrictive procedure in which a plastic band is placed laparoscopically around the fundus, leaving behind a small pouch that can change in size as the reservoir is inflated and deflated percutaneously. Unfortunately, this procedure is associated with a relatively high reoperation rate. One study found 20% of patients required removal or revision. Even more shockingly, some series showed a 52% repeat operation rate. 20 to 50% chance of a removal, revision, or other cause for return to ER? Those are some pretty high numbers. Finally, there's the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. As we mentioned previously, this is both a restrictive and a malabsorptive procedure. In this procedure, the duodenum is separated from the proximal jejunum, and the jejunum is connected to a small gastric pouch. Food transits from a small stomach into the bowel, and this leads to a decreased caloric intake and decreased digestion and absorption. Those are the three main procedures to know about. For the sake of completeness, just to be aware, there is also the biliopancreatic diversion with or without a duodenal switch, as well as a vertical banded gastroplasty. The biliopancreatic diversion is used infrequently, but is one of the most effective procedures in treating diabetes, though it does have an increased risk of complications. Expect to see this mostly in those with BMIs over 50. Now that you have a sense of the procedures, let's talk complications, both general and specific. Of course, it should go without saying that this population is susceptible to all the typical post-operative complications, such as venous thromboembolic disease, atelectasis, pneumonia, UTIs, and wound complications. Because their typical comorbidities, coronary artery disease, and PE, are still the leading causes of mortality, especially within the perioperative period. Also, be on the lookout for some self-harm emergencies, as patients with known psychiatric disorders are at increased risk following bariatric surgery. Surgical complications are wide-ranging and can be grouped into early and late complications. More on this later. Nutritional deficiencies are common enough to warrant pre- and post-operative screening. Thiamine deficiency is one of the most common deficiencies seen. This can manifest within one to three months of surgery as beriberi or later as Wernicke's encephalopathy. Symptoms of beriberi include peripheral neuropathy, ataxia, muscle weakness, high output heart failure, lower extremity edema, and respiratory distress. All of that being said, each specific procedure has its own unique set of complications that we should discuss. Let's start with the sleeve gastrectomy. Early complications of sleeve gastrectomy include staple line leaks, strictures, and hemorrhage. Leakage from the staple line typically presents within the first week, but can present up to 35 days, usually with fevers, tachycardia, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, sepsis, or peritonitis. This is one of the most serious and dreaded early complications and represents an important cause of morbidity with an incidence of 3 to 7%. Strictures commonly occur at the incisora angularis of the remnant stomach and are usually due to ischemia, leaks, or twisting of the gastric pouch. 
Patients with strictures usually have nausea, vomiting, reflux, and intolerance to oral intake. Hemorrhage occurs due to erosions at the staple line, resulting in peritonitis, hematemesis, or melana. Late complications of sleeve gastrectomies include reflux, which occurs in up to 25% of patients, and strictures, which lead to epigastric discomfort, nausea, and dysphagia. I'm getting reflux and massive heartburn just thinking about all these complications. Or maybe it was the tacos I just ate. Um, anyway, next we have the Roux and Y gastric bypass. Early complications of the Roux Y gastric bypass include anastomotic or staple line leaks, hemorrhage, early postoperative obstruction, and dumping syndrome. Leak incidences range from 1 to 6%, usually occurring at the gastrojejunostomy site. Patients typically present within the first 10 days with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and the feeling of impending doom. Some may present with isolated tachycardia, while others may present with profound sepsis, tachycardia, hypotension, and fever. Similar to the sleeve, hemorrhage can occur both intraperitoneally or intraluminally. This may lead to hematemesis or melana, depending on the location of bleeding. Early obstructions usually occur at either the gastrojejunal or jejunojejunal junction. Depending on the location, patients typically present either within two days or in the first few weeks in the case of the gastrojejunal site. If the obstruction occurs in the jejunojejunostomy site, this can cause subsequent dilatation of the excluded stomach and lead to perforation, which portends a very poor prognosis. Next, we have dumping syndrome. This has been seen in up to 50% of Roux-en-Y patients. Early dumping occurs within 10 to 30 minutes after ingestion. As food rapidly empties into the stomach, this leads to distension and increased contractility, leading to nausea, abdominal pain, bloating, and diarrhea. This usually resolves within 7 to 12 weeks. Moving on to late complications of the Roux and Y, first we have marginal ulcers. Peptic ulcer disease and diabetes are risk factors, and tobacco use and NSAIDs appear to increase your risk as well. In the worst case, they present with hematemesis or melana. Internal hernias, intussusception, and SBOs can all be seen after a Roux and Y gastric bypass. Patients with internal hernias usually present late in the postoperative period following significant weight loss. Most studies cite a rate of 1-3% to for internal hernias, with mortality up to 50% if there is strangulation. And unfortunately for us in the front line, diagnosis can be challenging. Presenting symptoms can be vague, CT imaging can be negative, and patients can be pain-free. Thus, laparoscopy may be needed to definitively exclude an internal hernia. Strictures may occur both during the early and late period. Most are minor, but significant strictures can result in an obstruction. Trocarcite hernias and ventral hernias are also late complications that are usually found after significant weight loss. Cholelithiasis is another very common complication of bariatric surgery, occurring in up to one-third of patients, usually occurring during a peak incidence period between 6 and 18 months. For this reason, the current recommendation is that patients undergoing bypass be placed on orso-deoxycholic acid for six months preventatively. Some even go as far as to recommend prophylactic cholecystectomy to prevent complications, but as of 2013, the recommendation was only to, quote, consider it. Nutritional deficiencies are also common complications. Vitamin D, B12, calcium, folate, iron, and thiamine deficiencies are all well-documented complications. Patients typically take vitamins postoperatively to prevent such complications. And next we have late dumping syndrome, which is far more rare than the last two complications. In late dumping syndrome, one to three hours after a meal, patients suffer from hypoglycemia from excessive insulin release following the food bolus entering the GI tract. Symptoms are those typical of hypoglycemia. Lastly, let's talk about complications of lap-adjustable gastric band surgery. In the early post-op period, you can have esophageal and gastric perforations, which typically occur during balloon placement. Patients present with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and peritonitis. These patients often require emergent operative intervention. 
The band can also be over-tightened, resulting in distension of the proximal gastric pouch. Presenting symptoms include abdominal pain with food and liquid intolerance and vomiting. Symptoms resolve once the balloon is deflated. The band can also slip, allowing the stomach to move upward and within the band. This occurs in up to 22% of patients and can cause strangulation. Presentation is similar to bowel ischemia. Later complications include port site infections due to repeated port access. The infection can spread into connector tubing and the peritoneal cavity, causing systemic symptoms. Definitely start antibiotics and touch base with a bariatric surgeon in these cases. The connector can also dislodge or rupture with time. This can present as an arrest in weight loss. It's diagnosed by contrast ejection into the port. Of note, this complication is less common now due to changes in the technique used. Much like early band slippage and prolapse, patients can also experience late band slippage and prolapse after weeks or months. In extreme cases, the patients can again have strangulation and symptoms of bowel ischemia. More mild cases will present with arrest and weight loss, reflux, and nausea vomiting. The band can also erode and migrate into the stomach cavity. If this occurs, it usually happens within two years of the initial procedure with an incidence of 4 to 11%. Presenting symptoms here include epigastric pain, bleeding, and infections. You'll want to obtain emergent imaging if you're concerned. And lastly, there are two rare complications worth mentioning from any gastric bypass surgery. These are nephrolithiasis, which is possibly due to an increase in urinary oxalate excretion or hypocitraturia, and rhabdomyolysis. That was a ton of information, but certainly valuable as most EM clinicians, even ones in practice for decades, are unlikely to have that depth of knowledge on bariatric surgery. And truthfully, these patients are complicated. Aside from the pathologies we just discussed, you'll also have to still bear in mind other abdominal conditions unrelated to their surgery, like appendicitis, diverticulitis, pylocolitis, hepatitis, pancreatitis, mesenteric ischemia, and GI bleeds. Moving on to my favorite section, pre-hospital care. As always, it's ABCs first. Consider IV access and early fluids in those at risk for dehydration and intra-abdominal infections. In terms of destination, if it's feasible and the patient is stable, consider transport directly to the nearest bariatric center. Early efforts up front will really expedite patient care in the end. Once in the ED, you'll want to continue initial stabilization. Special considerations for the airway, include a concern for a difficult airway due to body habitus. Make sure to position appropriately and pre-oxygenate the patient if time allows. Keep the patient upright for as long as possible as they may desaturate quickly when flat. We both routinely raise the head of the bed for all our intubations. This is ever more important for your obese patients to help maximize your chance of first-pass success without significant desaturation. And though I'm sure we all remember this from residency, it's worth repeating. Tidal volume settings on the ventilator should be based on ideal body weight, not actual body weight. That's about 6 to 8 milliliters per kilogram. Tachycardic patients should make you concerned for hypovolemia secondary to dehydration, sepsis, leaks, and blood loss. Consider performing a rush exam, and that's the rapid ultrasound for shock and hypotension, to identify the cause. A heart rate over 120 with abdominal pain should make you concerned enough to discuss urgent XLAP with the surgeon to evaluate for the post-operative complications we discussed earlier. If possible, obtain a view of the IVC also while doing your ultrasound to assess for volume status. But bear in mind that ultrasound will undoubtedly be more difficult if the patient has a large body habitus, so don't be disappointed if you're not getting the best views. Resuscitation should be aimed at early fluid replacement with IV crystalloids for hypovolemic patients and packed red blood cell transfusions for patients presumed to be unstable from hemorrhage. No real surprise for our seasoned listeners. Once stabilized, gather a thorough history. In addition to the usual questions, ask about PO intolerance, early satiety, hematemesis, and hematochesia. 
Definitely also gather a thorough surgical history, including the name of the procedure, date, known complications postoperatively, and the name of the surgeon. You might also run into, quote, medical tourism or global bariatric care. Patients are traveling overseas to get their bariatric care more and more frequently. Accreditation and oversight is variable in different countries, and there isn't a worldwide standard of care, just an important phenomenon to be aware of in this population. On physical exam, be sure to look directly at the belly, making note of any infections, especially near a port site. Given the reorganized anatomy and extent of soft tissue in obese patients, don't be reassured by a benign exam. Something awful may still be happening deeper. This naturally brings us into diagnostic testing. Not surprisingly, labs will be helpful in these patients. Make sure to check abdominal labs and a lipase. Abnormal LFTs or lipase may indicate obstruction of the biliopancreatic limb in bypass patients. A lactic acid level will also help you in suspected cases of hypoperfusion from sepsis or bowel ischemia. And we mentioned this earlier, but these patients are at risk for ACS given their comorbidities. Be sure to check a troponin if you suspect cardiac ischemia. If concerned for sepsis, draw blood cultures, and if concerned for hemorrhage, be sure to send a typing screen. Urinalysis and urine culture should be considered especially for early post-op patients, symptomatic patients, or those with GU complaints. And don't forget the urine pregnancy test for women of childbearing age, especially prior to imaging. Check an EKG immediately after arrival for any patient that may be concerning for ACS. A normal EKG, of course, does not rule out a cardiac cause of their presentation. As for imaging, plain radiographs certainly play a role here. For patients with respiratory complaints, check a chest x-ray. In the early postoperative period, there is increased risk for pneumonia. Unstable patients with abdominal pain will benefit from an emergent abdominal series, which may show free air under the diaphragm, pneumatosis, air fluid levels, or even dilated loops of bowel. Of course, don't forget that intra-abdominal free air may be seen after laparoscopic procedures, depending on how recently the operation was performed. Plain x-ray can also help diagnose a malpositioned or slipped gastric band, but a negative study doesn't rule out any of these pathologies definitively, given the generally limited sensitivity and specificity of x-ray. You might also consider an upper GI series. Emergent uses include diagnosis of slipped or perforated gastric bands, as well as gastric or esophageal perforations. Urgent indication includes the diagnosis of strictures. These can also diagnose gastric band erosions and help identify staple line or anastomotic leaks in stable patients. However, upper GI series might not be easy to obtain in the ED, so it's often just not the first test performed. And this brings us to the workhorse for diagnostic evaluation, the CT scan. Depending on suspected pathology, oral and or IV contrast will be helpful. Oral contrast can help identify gastric band erosions, staple line leaks, and anastomotic leaks. Leaks can be identified in up to 86% of cases with oral contrast. CT will also help diagnose internal hernias. You might see the swirl sign on CT, which represents swirling of the mesenteric vessels. This is highly predictive of an internal hernia, with a sensitivity of 78 to 100% and specificity of 80 to 90%, according to at least two studies. While CT is extremely helpful in making this diagnosis, note that it may be falsely negative for internal hernias. A retrospective review showed a sensitivity of 76% and a specificity of 60%. It also showed that 22% of patients with an internal hernia on surgical exploration had a negative CT in the ED. Another study found a false negative rate of 32%. What is all this mean? Well, it means that likely a negative study may still necessitate a diagnostic laparoscopy to rule out an internal hernia. While talking about CT, we should definitely mention CTA for concern of pulmonary embolism. In order to limit contrast exposure, you might consider doing a CTA chest and CT of the abdomen simultaneously. And next up, we have our favorite, the ultrasound. 
Ultrasound is still the first-line imaging modality for assessing the gallbladder and for biliary tract disease. And as we mentioned previously, ultrasound should be considered for your rush exam and for assessing the IVC and general fluid status. We also should discuss endoscopy, which is the test of choice for diagnosing gastric band erosions. Endoscopy is also useful for evaluating marginal ulcers, strictures, leaks, and GI bleeds. Additionally, endoscopy can be therapeutic for patients. When treating these patients, attempt to contact the bariatric surgeon for guidance as needed. This shouldn't delay imaging, however. For septic patients, make sure your choice of antibiotics covers intra-abdominal gram-negative and anaerobic organisms. Port site infections require gram-positive coverage to cover skin flora. Additionally, give IV fluids, blood products, and antiemetics as appropriate. All right, so this month we also have two special populations to discuss. First up are the kids. Recent estimates from 2015 to 2016 put the prevalence of obesity of those 2 years old to 19 years old at about 19%. As obese children are at higher risk for comorbidities later in life and bariatric surgery remains one of the best modalities for sustained weight loss, These surgical procedures are also being done in children. Criteria for bariatric surgery in the adolescent population is similar to that of adults and includes a BMI of 35 and major comorbidities like diabetes or moderate to severe sleep apnea or patients with a BMI of 40 with other comorbidities associated with long-term risks like hypertension, dyslipidemia, insulin resistance, and impaired quality of life. Despite many adolescents meeting criteria, they should still be referred with caution as the long-term effects are unclear and the adolescent experience is still in its infancy with few pediatric-specific programs. Still, the complication rate is pretty low, about 2.3%, with generally good clinical outcomes, including improved quality of life and reducing or staving off comorbidities. Women of childbearing age are the next special population to discuss. They're a particular risk because of the unique caloric and nutrient needs of a pregnant mother. Pregnant women who have had bariatric surgery have an increased risk of perinatal complications, including prematurity, small for gestational age status, NICU admission, and low APGAR scores. However, these risks come with benefits, as other studies have shown reduced incidences of preeclampsia, large for gestational age neonates, and gestational diabetes. 2013 guidelines from various organizations recommend avoiding becoming pregnant for at least 12 to 18 months postoperatively, with ACOG recommending a minimum of two years. Bariatric surgery patients who do become pregnant require serial monitoring for fetal growth and higher doses of supplemental folate. We also have two pretty cool cutting-edge techniques to mention this month before getting to our disposition. Though these are certainly not going to be done in the ED, you should be aware of two new techniques. Recently, the FDA approved three new endoscopic gastric balloon procedures in which a balloon is inflated in the stomach as a means of simulating a restrictive procedure. Complications include perforation, ulceration, GI bleeding, and migration with obstruction. As of now, they're only approved as a temporary modality for up to six months. And we also have the Aspire Assist Siphon, which was approved in 2016. With the siphon, a G-tube is placed in the stomach, and then one-third of the contents is drained about 20 minutes after meals, thus limiting the overall digested intake. Pretty cool stuff. Certainly is. In terms of disposition, decisions should be made in conjunction with the bariatric surgical team. Urgent and occasionally emergent surgery is required for those with hemodynamic instability, anastomotic or stable line leaks, small bowel obstructions, acute band slippage with dilation of the gastric pouch, tight gastric band, and infected port sites with concurrent intra-abdominal infections. 
And while general surgeons should be pretty well-versed in these complications should the patient require an emergent surgery, it's often best to stabilize these patients and consider transfer to your local bariatric specialty facility. In addition to the need for admission for surgical procedures, admission should also be considered in those with dehydration and electrolyte disturbances, those with persistent vomiting, those with GI bleeding requiring transfusions, those with acute cholecystitis and cholecystitis, and those with malnutrition. Finally, patients with chronic strictures, marginal ulcers, asymptomatic trocar or ventral hernias, and stable gastric band erosions can usually be safely discharged after an appropriate conversation with the patient's bariatric surgeon. Definitely a great time to do some joint decision-making with the patient and their surgeon. Exactly. Let's close out with some key points and clinical pearls. Bariatric surgeries are being performed more frequently due to both their success in sustained weight loss and improvements in associated comorbidities. There is an increased risk of post-operative myocardial infarction and pulmonary embolism after bariatric surgery. There's also an increased risk of self-harm emergencies after bariatric surgery, mostly in patients with known psychiatric comorbidities. Nutritional deficiencies can occur following bariatric surgery, with thiamine deficiency being the most common. Look for signs of beriberi or even Wernicke encephalopathy. Staple line leaks are an important cause of postoperative morbidity. Patients often present with abdominal pain, vomiting, sepsis, and peritonitis. Strictures can also present postoperatively and cause reflux, epigastric discomfort, and vomiting. Intraperitoneal or intraluminal hemorrhage is a known complication of bariatric surgery and may present as peritonitis or with hematemesis and melena. After significant weight loss, internal hernias with or without features of strangulation are a late complication. Late dumping syndrome is a rare complication following Roux-en-Y bypass occurring months to years postoperatively. It presents with hypoglycemia due to excessive insulin release. Esophageal or gastric perforation are early complications of adjustable gastric band surgery. These patients require emergent surgical intervention. Over-tightening of the gastric band results in food and liquid intolerance. This resolves once the balloon is deflated. Lead complications of gastric band surgery include port site infections, connector tubing dislodgement or rupture, band slippage or prolapse, and band erosion with intragastric migration. Given the myriad of possible bariatric surgeries, emergency clinicians should be cognizant of procedure-specific complications. Consider obtaining a lactic acid level for cases of suspected bowel ischemia or sepsis. Endoscopy is the best method for diagnosing and treating gastric band erosions. Septic patients should be treated with antibiotics that cover gram-negative and anaerobic organisms. Suspected port site or wound infections require gram-positive coverage. Pregnant patients who previously had bariatric surgery are at risk for complications from their prior surgery as well as pregnancy-related pathology. A plain radiograph may be useful in unstable patients to evaluate for free air under the diaphragm, pneumatosis, air fluid levels, or dilated loops of bowel. CT of the abdomen and pelvis is the mainstay for evaluation. Oral and or IV contrast should be considered depending on the suspected pathology. And lastly, have a low threshold for emergent surgical consultation for all ill-appearing, unstable, or peritonitic patients. So that wraps up episode 30. As always, additional materials are available on our website for emergency medicine practice subscribers. If you're not a subscriber, consider joining today. You can find out more at ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. Subscribers get in-depth articles on hundreds of emergency medicine topics, concise summaries of the articles, calculators and risk scores, and CME credit. You'll also get enhanced access to the podcast, including any images and tables mentioned. PAs and NPs, make sure to use the code APP4 at checkout to save 50%. And the address for this month's CME credit is ebmedicine.net slash E0719. So head over there to get your CME credit. As always, the you heard throughout the episode corresponds to the answers to the CME questions. Lastly, be sure to find us on iTunes and rate us or leave comments there. 
You can also email us directly at amplify at ebmedicine.net with any comments or suggestions. Talk to you all next month.